Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Looking to throw over the middle and into the end zone. Touchdown, Arizona State. We support each other's uh, teams the rest of the year, but during this game, all bets are off. That was all Eden Slovis. Wow, what a play by him. One man to beat 15-10-5. Touchdown, a new NCAA record. Dante Pettis. Washington State has found a way to move the ball. It's incredible what we're seeing here in Pullman tonight. Touchdown, Oregon. They fake the handoff. Justin Herbert delivers a dart. I went to HR several times about how the Duff fans treat me. Touchdown, Utah. I mean, this is the Pac-12 we're talking about. Episode 2, Pack Rap Podcast. Welcome in. I'm Jordan Brenner. I have Brad Restituto here with me. Jonathan Rifkin is here with me. Guys, we were just joking before we officially took the air. Our first show was on Thursday. And for a Pac-12 show, I don't think we could have picked a better time to start our programming than on Thursday with all the news that has come out. We covered two major breaking stories last week uh, on our initial show. We have even more pressing breaking news to cover today, and we're going to be all over it for the next hour, and that's the Pac-12 unity movement. Before we get into that, guys, what's going on? How are your days? It's uh, great to great to see your faces again. Good to be with you guys. Uh, yeah, the Pac-12 has found their way to get into the news stream without there being any live football for the moment. So it's definitely given us a lot to talk about and cover with uh, Pac-12 sports and the landscape of college football, why we're awaiting to see what the season is going to look like for the 2020-2021 season. You know, Jordan, I'm doing great. And Brad, everybody, I'm doing great. You know why? Because we actually have content, because we have things to discuss. I don't care if you like them. I don't care if you don't like them. I don't care if you agree with what I have to say. I don't care if you agree, disagree with what I have to say. What I care about is that we have the ability to have a discussion, that we have the opportunity to converse about something that we have seen or never seen before, something that is so unprecedented that our perspectives are going to be taken into account by everybody when it comes to this conversation. So, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about this, guys. I hope you are, too. It's great to be with everybody. Uh, So in case you've been under a rock and you haven't read anything, let's catch everybody up. And hopefully if you have been following this story word for word, like us three have, we'll be able to add something to the conversation as well. Let's start with this. The Pac-12 unity movement came about after Cal offensive lineman Jake Curran 
was reading a CBS Sports article in, I believe it was June. doesn't really matter. A while ago, he reads this article predicting, and this is from a data expert, uh, 30 to 50% of college football players would contract coronavirus, and which would inevitably lead to a handful of players dying from the virus. That got him thinking. It got him talking to his teammates, which led to one representative from each Pac-12 school, uh, Cody Shear from Arizona State, Javon Holland from Oregon, from every Pac-12 school except for Colorado, uh, to do Zoom calls to discuss what's important to them, what their concerns are. That led to over 400 Pac-12 players being a part of a group message online and led to this coordinated effort where Pac-12 players are threatening to sit out this season, withhold uh, their abilities, and, you know, realizing, I should say, their their worth, uh, how valuable they are at a critical moment in college football. So some of these demands include enhanced insurance benefits, uh, scholarship security, transfer flexibility, uh, Many of the concerns, I, I, I sit there reading them, and I'm like, I'm not in my head. Yes, yes, this sounds fair. This sounds fair. There are some hurdles for certain requests and demands that they're making that will be, in my estimation, just impossible considering the bureaucratic hurdles that they'd have to, to jump through before the season starts. It would be impossible to get those done for the start of the football season. Let's just start with some of these basic demands, guys. What stands out to you from these list of demands that the Pac-12 players have made? What seems doable? What seems unreasonable? What seems just impossible, especially uh, with the start of the season, you know, not too far away at all? Well, I think it's interesting because I think the most doable of all the, quote, demands is just the weekly visits, right? They want to have a consistent line of communication with the athletic directors of the conference and with Larry Scott, the commissioner. The fact that this wasn't a precedent already in the conference is concerning because there should be a, a, a flexible and dynamic space where the players can feel comfortable going to leadership within the conference and expressing their concerns. Now, that hasn't happened before, right? And that's... To me, that's the most accomplishable of everything besides the, base, the basic necessities of health insurance and of just making sure that, that, they're, that they're supported, uh, you know, surrounding the, with all the coronavirus stuff going on. But there should be a consistent line of communication between the players and the administration. And it, the fact that it's happening or it's being discussed now and it wasn't already instituted before is beyond I me. Mean, every conference should have this. This isn't a Pac-12 thing. This is how cohesion and how progress is made. Because right now we're seeing a national push for players to get more of a voice. The Pac-12 was trying to lead that movement. But the problem is, is that it, it's a two-way street, right? It only works if both sides are willing to sit down and with the opportunity to sit down with Larry Scott every week. Because this is all going to be trial and error. We don't have a football season. This has never happened before. We have no idea. They All of these demands could be met and it could not work. The infrastructure could collapse, Right. Or it could be the opposite, or they could cut some stuff off. We have no idea how this is going to go. This is going to be a continuous, ongoing conversation that changes as the landscape, to, landscape excuse me, of all of this changes. So the most accomplishable thing has to be the open line of communication, 
because this is going to be an ongoing conversation. What we see in two months from this movement may not necessarily be what we're seeing now. And that's what we have to be open-minded about. I think it's very admirable for the players to ignite the conversation. I think it's a great start to get the conversation going. Um, I think it just continues to spark the type of change in the entire landscape of the NCAA that the players want and they feel like they deserve. Um, I don't think we're in the time frame right now with the NCAA and college athletics that a lot of demands are going to be met that's going to mean more monetary um structure for the conferences and the teams. I mean, they're already hemorrhaging money on a daily hourly basis without your two major sports, having fans in the stadiums with, we, we already missed out on March madness for the 2019 season. We are looking at a college sports landscape with no fans for 2020. We've had programs continuing to drop off. So I think things that aren't going to first benefit uh, these programs and these institutions first and foremost, uh, that's, they're going to look out for their interests first. So I think the players have to understand that and understand that they're at least putting a groundwork to have discussion and negotiations. And negotiations, I think, will work well on both sides because it has the discussion in motion. And I think that's the most important thing for the beginning. But I think also the players have to be reasonable uh, in what they're going to stand their ground on and fight their battles with. Uh, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how this progresses and if this now bleeds over to other conferences and other players and other regions uh, of the United States and, and football, basketball, and, and all the sports, how this initial conversation breeds into more conversation, not just in the Pac-12, but in other conferences across the NCAA. couple things stand out to me uh, right off the bat from what's occurred over the last few days. And that is... Number one, just have how cohesive this strategy has been for the players to all come out on one day uh, together and have a united message is awfully impressive, especially when you compare it to the response of the conference, which was in a lot of ways delayed. Uh, you look at what Nick Rolovich had to say at Washington State, which we'll get into a lot more later, how rambling jumble the response that was it's impressive for a bunch of these college students to come together and come forward with a detailed list of demands i think that's awfully awfully admirable like you guys have said uh secondly i think this is a lot to do with pac-12 players realizing right now at this moment in time what leverage they had and they've kind of always had this uh, when you have a group of 400 players involved in a group message about this, you know, this isn't about uh, replacing a couple players, potentially. Uh, this is a the drop-off from – let me put this another way. When you have one or two players dropping out, right, right. You, can, you can easily replace that type of talent. When you have 400 people, all of a sudden you're sacrificing the quality of football – there's a demand for these football players to participate, to make uh, money for these universities, which is absolutely integral at this moment in time. And because of that, they're coming to the table with a lot of reasonable demands and a lot of demands that, like you said, Brad, are kind of planting the seed for these conversations to be had down the road. Uh, let's look at a couple of these, I guess, hard 
demands that are probably unreasonable to make before the season starts. Uh, specifically, the economic fair play rights and freedom demands that are being made. So couple big ones. Number one, uh, and this was the most jarring one, I think, was that 50% of the revenue generated by sports would be distributed evenly among athletes in respective sports. Uh, secondly, one demand is uh, 2% of the conference's revenue would be directed uh, to financial aid for underprivileged, low-income black students, uh, community initiatives, that type of deal there. So when we're talking about the season starting very soon, these demands would require funds to be taken from somewhere. Uh, again, th these demands not only have to do with, you know, just creating the money, but in order to make these decisions, you're going to be dealing with boards of universities. You're going to be dealing with legislation. There's no way, even if the Pac-12 said, okay, we agree with you, there's no way that that could happen before the season. Uh, so it comes back to the point of are students willing to, to actually follow through? Are these student athletes able to follow through on sitting out for all of these demands. My my feeling is no, that's the feeling of most people. But again, it kind of just gets the ball rolling for certain conversations uh, about paying collegiate athletes and, and stuff along those lines. Yeah, I think it's very, like I said, very admirable to get the conversation going. Uh, now, if you're asking me the question, do I feel like uh, if any of these demands are going to be met, I would say almost none to maybe very few. And from my perspective, I think the players have zero leverage because if they sit out, I can guarantee you they're going to find somebody to replace them. There's many of players out there, hundreds and thousands, that would be willing to accept any kind of scholarship to play Division One sports. So I know it seems like maybe on the outside these players have leverage, but there's no other option to play right now if you're going straight to the NFL. So as far as getting on the field and playing, unless you're a potential first-round pick, I feel like the leverage is zero because there's no options for you to play right now, and you will be replaced at the interest of these programs first. And that's always going to be their interest for the time being, especially when they're hemorrhaging money left and right. And you're asking these programs to put out more money to incentivize different programs or players' compensation. There's a 0% chance of that happening, especially this year, in my opinion. So I want to touch on two things that you just brought up here, Brad. Um, I want to touch on the idea. So number, you are right. These universities are hemorrhaging money. They, but you have to understand the infrastructure that was put in place, right? This thing was built. This infrastructure was built throughout the 60s and 70s when there were perennial powerhouses, very few of them that were dominating the way that this makeup was being made, right? The infrastructure is very flawed, especially in today's society, right? In 1971, fine. But in the 80s, we saw SMU get the death penalty for paying players. We saw in the 90s, SMU get in trouble. Penn State get in trouble. USC gets – like all these schools are getting in trouble because they're trying to find a way to value the best players on their team in a way that keeps them there. So I strongly disagree with you when you say these players are expendable in the eyes of their teams. They're not because winning in this conference, winning at an FBS level is number one, is paramount. They don't care if you're making a, a statement. They don't care if you're left or right. They don't care – 
what color you know you your your skin is or what sexual orientation you identify with will you help them win and if you're a five-star recruit if you're javon holland who's a lockdown defender at oregon and you feel you say i'm going to sit out if these demands aren't being met i guarantee you that oregon will do everything in their power to make sure javon holland is feeling comfortable enough to get on that football field because at the end of the day he's not a replaceable asset for that team it will be such a loss for all of these teams to try and replace these athletes and these aren't these aren't third stringers. These are first string star potential athletes that are making these statements. So they aren't, they, they have leverage. They're five stars They're four stars. These are, these guys have that, the administration of their schools in their ears, which is why they have this platform and these I, schools are not going to replace them. I, I would tend to agree with you under the circumstance or the premise that they can operate like they've always operated, like you mentioned, since the 60s. Money that can't be transparent and isn't taxable and going into the budget, which is already in a huge deficit as we speak. So under the circumstances that they've laid out in this, this is all transparent interaction with revenue being shared with players or, or whatever the demands of so, this so unity is. Let me ask you this. A true or false, the national conversation – has been has been progressing to favor players at the collegiate level true or false true okay so because the national conversation for the last x amount of years and i probably the hardest i ever worked in college was on a report on pay for play for one of the journal journalism class when i say hardest it took me like three hours i really didn't put a lot of work um no but but when when i say this is because yes in the 70s the infrastructure was made this way because the players we're part of, of the system. These players don't want to be part of the system anymore. And the, the national conversation is, is proving that right now we're seeing people who 10 years ago were against pay for play. We're against full scholarships. We're against allowing these athletes to even think about benefiting off their likenesses to Congress unanimously passing or state state senators and Congress unanimously passing guidelines for this to eventually come to be right. So the leverage is there. We're seeing it. How we've seen it happen the last two years. The Pac-12 perceptively has been at the bottom of the Power Five. They have been, I mean, the ACC has Clemson, which is why I put them up there. UNC is going to be good Florida State from a football perspective is going to be very solid. But from a branding perspective, the Pac-12 is at the fifth of the Power Five conferences. They need something. They need something to push the branding forward, to show the nation that this is the bottom of the Power Five, that there's some innovation happening in this conference. If the national conversation for these athletes is, okay, we want to find a way to give them a, a voice and more of a platform, the Pac-12 being at the forefront of that and abiding by some, not all, they're not going to get all. I agree with both of you on that. But abiding by some of these demands and having the, that cohesive ongoing conversation, that, uh, that brands the Pac-12 now as a leader in the player movement that eventually will matriculate at a national level. So I, I, just, I just don't see it happening where these guys are going to sit out and the Pac-12, these, these teams in the conference will let them. It just, they just can't. It's a bad look for the conference. It's a bad look for the schools. And these players want to play at the end of the day. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that Pac-12 players were kind of defining the value that they they had and that the universities ha have kind of uh, conceded in, in what their spending has been in the past. So one of the demands was to end the funding of these lavish college football facilities. Uh, you look at a five-story, $61 million building at Washington State, which is, you know, when you first look at it, kind of confusing why the players would want to end something like that. But I think what they're saying is that they would like to redirect the value that's being placed on them into their pockets. 
rather than funding a $61 million building, why not give those assets to the players to help their families? And, you know, it comes back to uh, at the crux of what their argument is, the systemic racism argument, the the injustice currently going on in society where we're willing to pay $61 million to upgrade facilities and get you on campus. That's a lot of value, but we're unwilling to put that directly in a place where you can impact yourself, your family and your community's well-being. So that, that, that's kind of what I took away from that. Uh, the, the value is there. It's not going exactly where the players can do most with it, if that makes any sense. I find it quite interesting that they that's the, the the hump that they want to stand on as far as facilities. I mean, these players, pretty much their entire downtime, most of their college life is spent in these facilities. They're one of the most important recruiting tools in bringing a big-time player to college sports. I would personally think that if they wanted to defund and put more money in their pockets, they'd take it away from some of these head coaches' enormous well, division were- salaries. Let me let me clarify. That was one of their demands yeah. that they listed. They also recommended uh, these enormous contracts for head coaches and uh, conference officials, executives at the top, particularly Larry Scott, who many would argue is probably the most overpaid of any of the Power Five commissioners. So they're making a bunch of these uh, a bunch of these demands. Uh, spamming spamming all over the place. The one I just pointed out was to just, I guess, lay out the fact that these universities do value these student athletes in in the figures of millions of dollars. uh, And the players would rather see that money go to uh, where they come from communities, which in many cases uh, is, you know, from a place of great, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for. Many players come from communities where there are certain hurdles to overcome uh, when compared to uh, the vast majority of, let's say, white uh, white student athletes. Most kids are going to prep schools and getting the professional, you know, the professional brought up that a lot of these guys, some of these guys are getting, I should say. That's that's what you're saying, Brendan. I'm a big advocate of getting to the negotiating table and putting all your cards out there and, and trying to oversell. And why not? Why not have the discussion? I, I, I do think there's a very small chance that uh, really any of these demands, maybe a few that uh, aren't monetarily uh, impactful, like some of the testing and the, the health and safety protocols that are completely doable. But I'm completely OK with these players throwing it all out there. Hey, let's get paid. Let's defund some of these coaches and players because that's the starting point of the conversation. You can't reach anywhere if you're not willing to start at the top. And I think that's what they're doing. And I completely admire that. Now, do, I don't think a lot of it's very tangible, which is OK, but at least it, it starts the discussion. And I think that's a good thing from a player's perspective. To, like you said earlier, John, to, to continue to progress these conversations where it's more favorable for the players. I think one of the, sorry, Jordan. Yeah. I mean, I just to sort of sum that all up because at the end of the day, the perspective that's going to be taken is your own, right? Like I have Jordan. I have a shared perspective because we were brought up in a very similar collegiate environment, right? Where we were surrounded by very house, but Oregon does a great job of allowing their players to sort of speak their minds in a, in, you know, in a, without towing that line, their media department does a great job prepping these guys. 
it's Cal does the same thing. Um, you know, so our perspectives are shaped that way. Now, somebody so elsewhere from the South, pers- from Florida, for example, might look at this and say, well, this, this, and this, and there's a reason like our schools aren't going to, and our students aren't going to, you know, unite with this movement or they're going to modify their own. But at the end of the day, I think that, I think that the, everybody's perception, no matter how you value these demands, no matter whether you, need, you think they're tangible or not, I think that everybody, with the exception of some few boneheaded national media members, are in favor in some capacity of finding a way to give these players some leverage at the end of the day, because that's what needs to happen. This is a broken infrastructure. It's not just football. It's all sports. And you mentioned at the very beginning, Brad, that the two sports are, have no fans, right? Football, basketball, the two rep sports. And they want to find a way to benefit all the, the non-rev sports. And that's a separate conversation that we can have. Um, but even if there's no way to benefit the non-rev sports right now, for the players to get the leverage to even come to the table and to have those conversations, that's what ever, I think that's the common goal for everybody. You don't, have, it's, you don't have to agree how they're doing it necessarily, but I think there's a way for us to all agree that these players are putting themselves in a good position regardless of the outcome and that all of us are trying to back them in a way that puts them in a position to be to, to feel like they're more secure both as students and, and as athletes. I want to bring up uh, one of the more controversial aspects of, of, of this conversation. And the Pac-12 is a unique conference where you have more conservative states like in Arizona, uh, potentially Utah. You're also dealing, you're just dealing with a lot of geographic diversity. So the feedback that certain players are getting in response to how they – how they support this movement, I think, is a, a little bit ridiculous. And I want to get your, your takes on this. What would you say in response to a fan calling out a player for being greedy, for making some of these demands, uh, especially, you know, there are two separate parts of this, right? There's the health and safety protocols, and then there's the economic aspect as well. And both kind of tie in with uh, the systemic racism portion of this but what would you say to somebody calling a player greedy for supporting this movement i wildly misguided right because number one that person has never been a college athlete before i think because if somebody is calling you out and saying i I, hear you know let me let me put this in general terms where we can all understand we're all young here jordan a little bit younger than me myself brad you look great by the way i'm not calling you old by any means you're older (laughs) than both of us um no, but I think, you know, we're all young. I think the demographic for our show tends to range a little bit younger. And even the older folks can probably relate to this because they were in their youth at one point in their lives. I would hope unless you're Benjamin Button or something. Um, we all try to better our personal situations in life, right? Even if you're peaking, even if you're the top of the top, human instinct is how do I get more? How do I make this better for myself? And at the end of the day, when we are all in bed, closing our eyes, Typically, we're thinking about our best interests, right? Yeah, we may say we want, we care about other people and we want to make sure that what we put out is positive and is benefiting everybody, right? It's a cohesive environment that we create. The problem is, is that when people are at, at the most vulnerable by themselves, that's when they start thinking about themselves. And that's how most people sort of go through life, right? In this situation, these players aren't doing anything different than what you and I try to do, right? So if somebody comes up to me and says, oh, why, do you, why are you trying to host a talk show, right? What, what's that doing for you? You already had a podcast. Why are you trying to do a talk show? Well, I'm trying to advance my career, right? I'm trying to find, take the steps to benefit me 
and my brand, my image, my likeness. Why can't these players afford that same thing? So if I'm a player and someone says, you're dumb for, for being part of this movement, number one, you've never played college sports before because you would understand that you are undervalued as an athlete. Number two, are you not a human being? Because why would you not want to get some leverage to better your, your situation, whatever it is in life? So those are the two answers that I would give to that person. Because at the end of the day, we all want more for ourselves. And we all want more. I hope that we all want more for the world around us. And there's a way to do both which is what these players are doing, then you should support them. Again, you don't have to support necessarily how they're doing it, but you, we all are, have been there personally. And these player situations are no different. Yeah, uh, from my perspective, I think it's important to, to, to know when to pick your battles. And I think when you're dealing with fans, uh, whether it's at a stadium, at a live event, or it's on social media, I think it's best to take the the overall team philosophy just to block out the noise. Uh, I don't even I don't think it's worth anybody's energy, especially on social media. We we've seen it work with professional athletes all around the landscape when they get into it with fans. It's really not going to accomplish anything. So from my perspective, whether you agree or disagree, I think the best thing to do when engaging with fans, really, if it's live or on social media, is just block out the noise. Kind of stay focused and streamlined on what what's really important to you and where you want to pick your battles. And I think the place uh, to do it is not with fans. Uh, so they're going to have their opinions, and we know how we are. We've all been fans at some point and in some capacity. And there's going to be a pocket of them that always have a strong opinion when it comes to the monetary compensation and the greed and and a lot of strong opinions there. And I think it's just best to just let them vent and block out the noise and not even give them the energy or time of day to respond to them because that's how it just continues to amplify the emotion. You can go back and forth. And I think from a player's perspective, it's best to just kind of stay focused on the things that are really important and kind of keep it within the confines of the locker room and the team. I'd also add, you know, Jonathan, you talk about how the players are trying to improve their own positions. You know, a lot of the leaders of this movement are going to reap many of these benefits. Like we said, this is starting a conversation that's going to benefit future generations of athletes. So, I'd use the exact opposite word of greed. They're not going to be reaping these benefits. They're standing up for what they believe in, for what they know, that uh, they feel undervalued and, uh, as a student athlete, deserve more. Let's, uh, let's shift over to this. So Nick Rolovich, the new head coach at Washington State, made headlines this week because uh, in the wake of the announcement of this movement uh, – he, uh, he had a conversation with uh, Cassidy Woods, who is a receiver on Washington State, who had originally offered or rather requested to sit out the season due to uh, concerns over his health. And uh, Nick Rolovich then heard uh, about the aspect of things where, you know, uh, Cassidy Woods was also affiliated with this movement. And let's, let's just take a look at what Rolovich's initial response was. We'll re react to that. Uh, I tend to think that it was a bit reactionary, a bit jumbled. So he says, okay, so that's going to be, that's going to be an issue if you align with them as far as the future stuff, because the COVID stuff is one thing, but um, joining this group is going to put you on a, that's obviously, you know, you get to keep your scholarship this year, but it's going to be different. You know, if you say, I'm opting out because of COVID and health safety, I'm good. 
But this group is going to change, I guess, how things go in the future for everybody, at least our, our school. So just think about that is if it's about getting paid and not and, and not about racial justice and that stuff, then it's probably if there's going to be two sides, there's two sides here. Uh, so you can, you can tell this is a bit jumbled. I'm good with the sickle cell and the COVID, but this this group is going to be at a different level as far as how we're kind of going to be moving forward in the future. Does that make sense? Well, Rolovich, let me respond by saying, no, that doesn't make too much sense to me. Uh, and this comes back to my point where the players, you know, came as a wave together on social media and put out their statements, their demands in a very professional manner for a first year head coach at Washington State who came from the Mountain West in Hawaii, right? Shout out to their first Mountain West championship, by the way, last year. Just Ten and that. five. It was a it was a very successful season for the Rainbow Sorry, Warriors. You and LV. <laughs> what do you what do you guys think of this statement from Rolovich, which he has since kind of backpedaled on, and we'll get to that statement next. What message does that send to his players? What message does that send to the administrators at Washington State? What do you think of what he had to say? So here's the deal. Here's my take on this. So I actually have had the opportunity uh, to interview Nick Rolovich live on our podcast last year. We've talked a lot. I got to know the guy pretty well. Uh, he's, a, he's a very well-thought-out person. But you could tell that his lack of experience in a big situation may hurt him at some times. And that's where we see in this situation. I don't think that Nick Rolovich had ill intention. I don't think that Nick Rolovich was trying to say that this movement, trying to, as that comes down, my professional set <laughs> backdrop comes down behind me. Uh, I guess it's telling me I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the homemade studio, ladies and gentlemen. So anyways, my point is with Nick Rolovich, he's a good guy. He's well thought out typically. Now, when you're put on a spot like this and when you're being recorded, when you're, when you don't think you are, yes, he slipped up. No, I don't agree with how he said what he said or in the manner that he said it. However, I do think that now that more information has come out and we'll get to here in a moment, Jordan, I'm sure you will. I don't know if we need – I think we need, need to cut him some slack, I, just a little bit, because now he's back out. Pat Chun, the athletic director, has also said this. He's back out in support of the movement. He's saying, look, I just don't want to distract from the point of this, which is to go out and win football games, which I understand. But the problem is, and that's where I disagree with you, Coach Wolovich, is that that's not the point of it. That's a point of it. The point of this is to make sure that your players are feeling comfortable enough and willing enough to play for you to go out and win those football games. And that's the part I have a problem with. Yes, he got jumbled. Yes, he had these crazy Freudian slips and probably didn't even know what he was saying at the time on top of didn't know he was being recorded. So I, I don't like what he said. I don't like how he said it, but I don't think that he was sincere in the negative aspects of it. And again, as we'll talk about here in just a moment, um, I, I do think that this is one of those things that like with Coach Leach at Washington State, we're upset with it. He's going to find a way to make amends and we'll all move on. I'm personally not convinced that this is all Nick Rolovich, that this is something that he thought of himself. I, I, I'm of the firm belief that he was instructed by his bosses to align with the best interests of the university. Uh, that's where I think this stems from. I, I think initially, before we were able to have the open discussion, that this looks like an us versus them type of thing. The players united against each and every university, whether it's Washington State, whether it's Oregon or any other 
uh, team in the Pac-12 conference, I think that this is initially how it was thought to come off. Like we have to protect the best interests of the conference. And if you're against, if you're not with us, you're against us. I think that's where this maybe stemmed from. And I don't know that it was all Rolovich, but of course he's got to take the brunt of his words. He's the one that spoke them. So I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, the backpedaling. I'm not a big advocate of anybody backpedaling. You got to kind of own your words. And even if they're not right, uh, figure out a way to kind of uh, maybe contextualize them as opposed to backpedaling, even though it's uh, like you said, it could be a very slippery slope on what he said there. Uh, But I got to be honest, I'm not completely anti what Rolovich said. I mean, if I'm, I'm kind of backing the best interest of the program. And I think in a time where I've mentioned before, where programs are hemorrhaging money left and right, they've got to look out for their best interest in a way uh, that's going to be beneficial for them to continue operations. I think, I honestly believe the operations of all of these universities uh, can be in deep jeopardy if we don't get some type of normalcy back in the way that we've operated college uh, institutions like we have before, because it's not just the sports that are hemorrhaging money. It's the institutions as a whole. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this continues to develop because you've got to find a way to not only have open dialogue with what the players are wanting and deserving, in my opinion, but also what's going to be in the best best interest to continue to have these institutions uh, survive and evolve. Because I, I in my opinion, it's, it's in dire straits at the current, but, but, current but moment. Brad, the institution itself, the institution is a, is a conglomerate of people. And the, the people within the institution are acting on their best self-interest. It's not the best interest of – Washington State has enough backing to not have football and to be fine. Sorry. Like, that's just – that's the reality. So go look at their endowment and tell me I'm wrong. They look at their boosters and tell me I'm wrong. Every school in the Pac-12. Okay, John, but for how long? For how long can they but, sustain? But that's the problem. They that 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 proves that they need to change the infrastructure. What we're going, we're not going to see college football back the way that it was ever again. I'm not saying because of coronavirus. I'm saying because there will be changes made based on this movement. We don't know what they will be. I don't know. We don't know the national matriculation of this. We know there will be something, but there will be changes. And they, what this is exposing is the fact that the the money hemorrhaging is not a cohesive way. It is only benefiting those within the hierarchy of the institution of what you're saying, right? I don't want my boss to be hemorrhaging money that's, that I feel I'm entitled to. You don't want your boss to. These players don't want their bosses to, right? So the infrastructure, like I said, the infrastructure has been flawed since day one. The problem is, is now the flaws are being exposed. They can't find a way to go back to normal because back to normal, these nobody will accept back to normal. These players, the up and coming generation, Jordan, that you mentioned, Nobody. You think that Southern Californians who play in the hardest, most competitive high school football leagues are going to go to some cupcake school because a Pac-12 school might or may or may not be part of this movement? No, they're going to go to the Pac-12 school because they want to be showcased and they want to be represented. They want to have the best possibility to go and play. And the Pac-12 knows they have the best opportunity to track those athletes, those recruits, if they are in the best position to benefit those athletes. So yeah, the institutions may feel a little selfish. The conference itself I guarantee you, Larry Scott knows he's on the ropes. He's been on the ropes for three years. I tweeted about it when I interviewed him at Washington State a couple of years ago. This guy's job has been on the ropes. And the fact that they didn't sell the Pac-12 network to ESPN is beyond me. That just puts him on the thinnest device. And right now, if he doesn't appeal to any of the ability to benefit these players and take away the power of the institution a little bit, he's absolutely screwed. I'm telling you that right now. So let's get back to the statement real quick, because I think the issue here. You know, there were so there are so many details that weren't out at the time of this decision. And for Rolovich to get on the phone with a player like Cassidy Woods, who 
quite honestly, after reading some of the things online about his intentions to not play football, but still work out at the team facility, still hang out with players. Forget Cassidy Woods. At this time, at the time that this statement was made, Nick Rolovich used more kind of an intimidation tactic where if you align with this, you know, we might have to seriously consider your future with the program. He didn't have to have that conversation then. He could have said, all right, due to your concerns with the health and safety protocol, uh, that's totally fine. We're going to acknowledge your scholarship, but frankly, you can't be around the team. We can't, uh, we can't have that liability issue where you're around the team. And I think that would have been fair. So, but Jonathan, let's get up the second quote he had, and, and we'll uh, take a look at this where Rolovich kind of backpedaled on his statement. All right, so he said, I spoke with Cassidy Woods in a private phone conversation last Saturday afternoon. This was before the hashtag We Are United group had its released, had released its letter of concerns. Cassidy informed me he was opting out of the season for health and safety concerns. I wanted to clarify with Cassidy that his decision was based on health and safety and reaffirm our policy related to COVID-19 that the assurance and the assurance of a scholarship. Without knowing the concerns of the group, I regret that my words cautioning Cassidy have become construed as opposition. I'm proud of our players and all the Pac-12 student athletes for using their platform, especially for matters they are passionate about. Washington State University Football student athletes who have expressed support for the We Are United group will continue to be welcome to all team-related activities unless they choose out choose to opt out for health and safety reasons. So backing backpedaling, I think the most uh, important part of that quote is where he said, uh, "My words have been construed as opposition." Uh, that's not how they were construed. That's what they were, guys. What are you, what's your response to? Uh, what Rolovich had to say in his second take, which uh, took a day to come out and likely had a bunch of PR uh, talking heads in his ear. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because I, I like to play the role of let, let's assume that, I, I mean, I would anyone be surprised if there was other coaches having these similar conversations? It just wasn't made public. I mean, what if, we're talking 30 division one programs, power five schools that had these players united and there was a legitimate chance that they were to sit out. What would the conversation look like? What would the landscape look like then? Uh, and, and I know that uh, it may seem like these players have leverage, but I'm still of the belief that their leverage is limited due to the fact that if one sits out or one doesn't based on health reasons or based on, uh, reasons of having demands met that we know how fluid this transfer thing is and there will be other people whether and there's still going to be money transacted under the table whether we want to believe it or not so I don't think that that's going to be as big of an issue as you know in Oregon or so, so what whoever feeling like they're going to lose multiple five-star players I believe I truly believe there's other five-star players waiting in the wings that they'll have replacing that person right away so I think it's interesting to see how this landscape will continue to evolve on a daily and weekly basis and how serious these players may or may not be about sitting out. I would call their bluff. I don't think it's going to happen. Let's see. Let's see how it shakes out. 
Brad, I want you to put a pin in the idea that five stars are waiting in reserves. And I want you to come on my recruiting show sometime to talk about that, because I think that's an interesting take. Um, but this is not that that kind of show right now. So we'll blow over it. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, this this point, right? Like the at, let me put it this way. The reason that big big players go to big schools consistently is because those big schools typically go be above and beyond what you typically see. And I know I use typically eight times um, what you commonly see uh, to get those players to those schools, right? I'm not confirming nor denying that I have personally with my own eyes seen big names get personal transactions under the table to come to a program. I'm not confirming or denying that fact. I'm not telling you where it was or who it was and if that's even happened, but I just, I'm telling you it may or may not be happening, right? It doesn't matter, but I know what happens and it's not just football. (laughs) I mean, well, we're seeing basketball is it's honestly more prominent because there's more athletes at a higher level. Um, it's but that's not the point. The point is that no matter what that's going to happen, you're not going to eliminate the under the table benefits or incentives that these, that these schools are going to offer these guys to try and come. What, what some of this does is it actually remedies that situation. If when, when athletes are allowed to benefit off their names and likenesses, well, that's an incentive that now these schools can offer as a legitimacy. It's not illegitimate. So that's going to attract. So, you know, I, I packed, and by the way, the PAC 12 as a market share, look at the schools in this conference. Washington is this, isn't a big market. Oregon isn't a big sports market. It's not in a big media market, but consuming wise, it does very well. Regionally, it does very well. Both Oregon and Oregon State do very well regionally. Los Angeles, the biggest market in the country, arguably in terms of sports in the world. Um, and even Northern California. Berkeley is not too far from Palo Alto, the Bay Area, San Francisco. All of these places are where you can make yourself marketable as an athlete, right? And all of these athletes, if they get the pay-for-play opportunity, it's going to make this conference that much more attractive because do you want to go to Baton Rouge and get $40,000 for being the star quarterback by the Mercedes dealership? Or do you want to come to LA and get a $250,000 for being the star quarterback at USC because the market cap is bigger? And that's another, I think in the back of the mind, that's another thing that these athletes are thinking of in this conference specifically. This conference has a conglomerate of the largest markets in the nation for college athletes. And they want to benefit off their ability off of their skills, off of what they bring to the table. Um, and so I think that the conference will listen to them because that also elevates what we'll end up seeing on the field. So uh, it, it's all it's all these conversations end the same, right? It's how can we decipher what's fact or what's fiction? How can we – how do we know if they're bluffing? Do we not know? What, was Nick Rolovich being sincere? Was he a puppet? Was the PR team behind his, his second response? Probably, Jordan. You probably were 100% right on that. But at the end of the day, all of this – is just conversation. Until we see tangible stuff on the table, we can only point to the elements that benefit the players and the elements that we think that the conference and the schools will be able to compromise on. So this is this is something that we're going to have to keep monitoring because this is an ongoing story. It changes every 24 hours. And we'll, we're going to have more on this on Thursday, I'm sure. But for our final 10 minutes, let's, uh, let's transition to something else. Else. And in the spirit of talking about Nick Rolovich in Washington State, let's let's uh, let's bring in the Cougar Corner, which is going to be a segment uh, that we do on Washington State from time to time. We'll do segments on every school. Let's just talk about Washington State. Who is Nick Rolovich? Well, he's the former coach of Hawaii, ten and five for the Rainbow Warriors in the Mountain West a season ago, coming in to replace Mike Leach, who uh, went to coach in the SEC at Mississippi State. So 
this is going to be a complicated season for Washington State, mostly because they haven't been able to have an official practice yet with their new head coach. But uh, in essence, this is going to be a similar offense in terms of X's and O's. They're going to air it out. Uh, what do you guys see from Nick Rolovich in season number one, the talent he has? And tell me a little bit about the quarterback room, too, because that is certainly unstable. And it's not like Washington State hasn't dealt with that before. You could argue last year with Anthony Gordon, the year before with Gardner Minshew. Those were far from stable situations and both got NFL opportunities. So this is familiar territory for Washington State. Yeah, but this isn't a Mike Leach coached offense. I think we're going to see a little bit of a hybrid. So here's here's an interesting thing. Uh, McDonald, I'm forgetting Cole McDonald, the Cole quarterback. McDonald. Cole McDonald, the quarterback at Hawaii last year, was drafted in the fifth round. I actually really like the guy. Um, he was a he was a he wasn't a pro style quarterback. He was he was a dual threat quarterback who could throw the ball pretty well. Uh, Washington State typically the identity surrounds pro style quarterbacks who sit in the pocket and throw absolute cannons down the field. 60 to 70 times a game for 680 yards, and they still find a way to lose 70 to 40 or 70 to 65 to UCLA at 1 a.m. in the morning on the East Coast. Um, the identity of the team is going to shift. It's going to be a hybrid. You're going to see hybrid West Coast offense, hybrid air raid. You're going to see the opportunity. So here's the interesting thing. First time in four seasons that Washington State right now has a an underclassman listed as a starter on their depth chart. We haven't seen that before. So typically, the depth comes from transfers. Luke Falk, by the way, didn't start till his junior year when he did. We saw the transfers of Garner Minshew. We saw, obviously, last year. Um, so this is going to be a situation where Rolovich, as the new guy, will also have to start developing new guys and underclassmen to take over this team. You said it's going to be a hard season. It is going to be a hard season. Because right now, on their depth chart, Jordan, they don't have what, we're, what we typically see. We typically see, like, four quarterbacks, right? They have Kamen Cooper. A redshirt sophomore out of Lehigh, Utah. He was a three-star, very undervalued three-star. He's currently the number one quarterback on their depth chart, and he hasn't thrown a, a pass yet at the FBS level. He redshirted last season. So that's the biggest question, right? They have two wide receivers returning. They have Max Borgie, who was an all-conference second-team back. Could have uh, He couldn't have been first-team, but all-conference second-team back, deservedly so, even for a team that didn't run the ball. Um, he's coming back. Offensive line is still intact. That team is going to be good but they're not going to be the same at quarterback and that's going to be the adjustment. And you have to change how you approach your perception of this team, because it's not going to be this guy throwing 60 to 70 times. You're going to see Max Ford, you run the ball more and you're going to see shorter plays down the field. Look, uh, John, you mentioned your interaction with Nick Rolovich uh, and it was a positive one being here uh, in Las Vegas and Hawaii being a part of the Mount West conference. Uh, I was at multiple mountain West media conference days here uh, that was here in Las Vegas Nick Rolovich, aside from what was said here recently, is typically known as a player's coach, and he really got the most out of uh, that Hawaii offense. And if it wasn't Cole McDonald, week one last year against Arizona, number two quarterback Chevin Cardero came in and, and pretty much picked up where McDonald left off. He was very successful in his role. And Rolovich had that offense rolling. They were in a lot of shootouts, and they rarely, rarely got blown out. They were in every game. So I think from an offensive X's and O's and, and strategic standpoint and a player standpoint, 
Rolovich will be a guy that gets them competitive. Will it happen right away? Like you mentioned, John, uncertainty at the quarterback position, not necessarily the guys in that quarterback room right now that are going to be able to run the offense. Maybe the Rolovich anticipates them being able to run down the road. Uh, but I do think he's going to be the right guy to get that program competitive in that conference. I'm very high on Nick Rolovich as a coach and the, the coaches he's going to be able to surround himself with to get that offense kind of not missing a step from when they had Anthony Gordon there and, and really airing it out. I think they're going to do that. They're going to air it out uh, come hell or high water with that offense. Do they have the guys that they want right now to be able to execute that? I don't know, and I don't think so. But I think Rolovich is the guy. I like him as the guy. We'll have to see how this recent hiccup affects him down the road and affects that program. But overall, as a coach, I think he's a good coach, and I think he's a really, really good offensive coach. So I think the question is more on the defensive side because, look, on offense, uh, there are at least pieces that you could see producing. Three receivers returning who had 500 or more yards from last year in Tay Martin, Renard Bell, and Travell Harris. Max Borgie is back, like you mentioned, Jonathan. But on the defensive side of the ball, it's going to be a, a, a tall glass for the new defensive coordinator. Also a Mountain West guy, I should mention, Jake Dickert from Wyoming, who uh, whose defense gave up a little less than 18 points a game last year. So uh, an experienced defensive coordinator making the leap to the Pac-12. But guys, this is a group that was terrible last year. That gave up 50 points in the second half to UCLA and lost at Martin Stadium in Pullman. Uh, I, I think this could be a long process for Washington State. And if they're going to win, it's going to have to be in a shootout capacity. You know, it's scary that you say that, Brunner. Nothing against these guys, because typically from year to year, players improve, especially in college, because that's just how the learning curve is. Uh, all of these starters for from the defensive end all the way down to the defensive backs for Washington State are returners with the except of one. That's Tyrese Ross. He redshirted last year. He's a free safety. He's probably going to start. He's pretty good. Um, and they were the weakest defense, both passing and rushing, uh, in the Pac-12 last year. Well, actually, that's not true. Arizona State actually, or Arizona had like by like 0.5 yards was the worst rushing defense. Um, my point is, these guys weren't very good last year. Most of these guys are coming back. So do we expect them to have made the progressions to be better? Do we expect the defensive staff to have made the adjustments to accommodate and remedy the problems that they had last season? I have no idea. I don't because that program isn't built to be a defensive nuisance. They're built to be an offensive powerhouse. And that's the identity of Washington State. I think they brought in Nick Rolovich because he's an offensive-minded coach. He surrounded himself with great offensive minds. I will innovate this offense to fit the personnel that they have. The defensive personnel hasn't changed. I don't think it will change. Do we think that they're going to look a little bit better? I would hope so because otherwise, what's the point, right? If you're not going to get better year to year, then why are you playing this sport? If you're peaking right now, why are you playing this sport, right? Maybe because you love it, but you want to go out and win. And these guys, again – all defensive players, with the exception of Tyrese Ross and the transfers, are returners, or they're all upperclassmen. So you would have to assume, hopefully, that they're a little bit better. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, defensively, we'll see a little bit better of a Washington State team than last season. Um, but I really need to see what these guys look like, whether they're in shape, even like a practice of just full capacity to just get an idea of where they are athletically right now uh, would give me a better idea of what we may or may not see on defense from Washington State. 
Yeah, I'm going to keep it pretty simple. I don't I don't know that you can get much worse than you were last year from a Washington State perspective on defense. And look, this is going to be a challenge for Nick Rolovich. This, this is a step up from the Mountain West Conference into the Pac-12. So it's going to be on him to get his staff ready to go to figure out a way uh, to be successful. And you're going to have to figure out ways on offense to keep your offense and, and your defense off the field uh, and, and find a way to shorten the field and get stops and, and put your – your defense in a position uh, where they can hopefully get the other team to settle for field goals as opposed to punching it in the end zone and going up and down the field. So it's going to be a big challenge for Rolovich to step up from Mountain West to Pac-12 football. But from the defensive perspective, I don't know that you can get much worse. So I think it can be only up for here for Washington State and that defensive program. And and we'll see how it looks coming into uh, this season, bearing that we see it uh, reveal itself here. Uh, in the springtime or hopefully uh, in the fall. Well, guys, before we get out of the way, just a reminder to all our listeners that you can find this podcast in a podcast form anywhere you want at Spotify, uh, LandryFootball.com. And also we'll be back on Thursday at 11 a.m. to break down more Pac-12 football. Tune in five minutes from now, the debut of Just Recruiting with Jonathan Rifkin, who's right here. we got to get out of the way really quickly so he can get ready. But thanks for listening. We'll be back Thursday on the Pack Wrap. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.